Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Hey, Tribe. Welcome back to the show. Thanks to all of you who have subscribed to A Tribe Called Yes. There are thousands of you now across the world. Thank you for tuning in every week. Also, check out my latest book, Call in Audible. Let my pivot from Harvard Law to NFL coach inspire your next transition. It's been the number one Amazon bestseller. And let me tell you something. If you are thinking about switching careers or making a difficult transition in life, this is the book you want. Check it out on Amazon and let me know what you think. Today, Tribe, we have Gene Watson, director of pro scouting for the Kansas City Royals. He's going to talk about his journey from the bottom of the food chain, a little something I know about, to the top of professional baseball. Welcome to the Tribe 2015 world champion, Gene Watson. All right, welcome to the Tribe, Gene Watson, director of pro scouting for the Kansas City Royals. We're here in Austin, Texas. I'm going to ask you the first question. If I were to yank you out of your 11th grade English class and ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? What was the answer? TV sports anchor. <laughs> that was a quick one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Del Henson was my guy, Channel 8 out of Dallas. And about the only thing I got to do in high school to stay up late was to watch him at the end of the night. And it was really cool to get to meet him when I was in school and He's an integral guy. He's got great thought, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be on TV. So you wanted to be on TV. You love sports, had aspirations of playing in the MLB or NFL. When did the reality set in? You know, I don't think I, I don't think I ever one day thought that the reality of professional baseball would happen. I just I loved so much uh, being a part of a team, hmm. and I played at Temple High School football. Temple High School for a legendary coach named Bob McQueen, and. Uh, there was just something about being a part of that culture and, and being a part of something bigger than you. And, you know, I had to fight for every inch on the playing field, football and baseball, and was a self-made player on the baseball field and walked on two different schools. And so I, it never really dawned on me. I, I look back and think, you know, maybe had I known more, hmm. but nah, I have no regrets about the way it turned out. Hmm. Now, you and I, we, we share a lot of commonalities. One, we've been fired a ton of times. All right, and we both slept in major league ballparks. Talk about kind of setting up shop and how do you start your career and then get to where you are today? I was actually coming home. I, I my playing career was over. I was going to come home and finish school, start a family, and I got a call from Jeff Rogers, who who now is the facilities director for American Airlines Arena in Dallas, and he said, "Hey, we got this job in the Ranger Clubhouse, but you got to come back today." And I literally left my girlfriend, now my wife of 24 years, sitting on a couch and I packed my clothes and had no place to live and mm. went back up and worked for the Rangers in the clubhouse for three years and just learned the meaning of hard work with no guarantees and uh, being around great people, great leaders, Nolan Ryan, Bobby Valentine, Goose Gossage. It was a great job. And, um, you know, just never really ever dreamed that it would spiral 
what it's turned into today, but just being educated about the game every day and being around great people and sort of finding a pathway is, has gotten me to this position with the Royals. And so in many ways, you were an outsider. I mean, what were some things that you did on a daily basis that you think separated you from the rest of the guys who were in the building? I just loved being in the building. Mm-hmm. I loved being around the players. I, I mean, I, I lived there. And I just loved player stories, people's stories, where they'd come from. And if that taught me one thing about my job today, there's something about a major league player. There's an it factor. And you can't put your pencil to it. You can't put your finger on it. But there's something about the way they carry themselves, the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they act, that inner confidence. And oftentimes that inner confidence and what's made them what they are is their greatest strength. And it's also their greatest weakness from a uh, self-awareness standpoint. And you can't fault them for that Hmm. when you're talking about one of the best 750 players in the world. But just being around it. There was something happening every day, whether it was a celebrity coming in or a movie being filmed or future president, the future yeah. president, G.W. <laughs> Bush was in all the time, used to wake me up in the food room. And it was a great, great time in my life that I really cherish. What are some things that you remember? What are some stories you can tell us? I started out as a grunt for the Kansas City Chiefs. I was picking up barbecue from Gates and delivering it over to the coaching staff and taking guys to the airport when they were cut and picking up guys that we were acquiring. We're fellow grunts, so Mm -hmm. we've got that commonality. Mm -hmm. What are some stories from down under that you can share with people? Well, I I don't think people realize what a practical joker Nolan Ryan was. Mm -hmm. And Nolan, and I love Nolan so much, and his family, and Ruth, his wife, and Wendy and Reese and Reed, his kids, we're all still very close today. They live in Georgetown. I love spending time with them when I see them. But Nolan was a real practical joker, and he was always pulling jokes. And there was one time, you know, Nolan would pitch, say he pitched on Monday. Tuesday was a rehab weight day. And then Wednesday, he would always sign autographs from the visiting team. They would send over boxes of bats and pictures and balls and stuff. And no, wait, is that common? Is that common? It, it's not as common as it used to be. Hmm. It's not as big as it used to be. But, but the memorabilia deal in baseball was a big deal back then. From the visiting team. From the visiting team. And, and you know, when Cal would come in, we'd everybody would get a Cal Ripken ball or whatever, you know, whoever the big player was. And so... But Nolan one night, um, it was Bill Ziegler, our trainer's birthday, and uh, there was had a huge cake in the in the press room. And so, you know, we're all sitting around in Joe Macko's office, and he signed his autographs, and it was like story time. You know, it was the, those were the times I really remember. And so he says to me, my nickname was Snacks, and he says, Snacks, go fix me some popcorn. And so I, I go in the food room, and I put the popcorn in, and it's popping. And you know how a room gets when there's popcorn, and everything smells like butter. And so... Um, Scott Champarino and Bill Ziegler and Nolan walk in, and, and Champarino, who now works for Scott Boris, the agency, says, he goes, man, my stomach's killing me. And Nolan goes, what what happened? And he goes, I don't know. And he goes, what'd you eat? And Champ goes, I ate some of that cake. And Nolan says, well, did you eat some of the cake snacks? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, have you smelt it? And I lean down to smell it, and he takes my head and throws it right into the cake, and I got cake all over myself. And so it was always, you had to be on your toes with Nolan. It was He was always pulling some joke. I always kid people that, the first year for the Kansas City Chiefs, if you were to Google Darren Roberts and Kansas City Chiefs, nothing would come up. I was, um, you know, there was no paperwork on me. I was just running around doing small tasks. What were some of the things that you had to do on a daily basis 
to stay in the building, right, and stay on people's radar. We did their mail, you know, and, and cards still today are a big deal for players. So we would separate the mail. I, I would oftentimes get on players too. I'm like, hey, listen, I'll I'll open the envelopes and put them back. You you just get a pen. Let's sign for like 30 minutes. So <laughs> guys that I was close with, I would try to stay on them about that. But you know, making sure their lockers are clean, making sure their uniforms are ready to go, their equipment was in place, the food room was in order. It was a pretty regimented day the day was really regimented and you and and the days were much much longer than than they are now i mean we would the game would end and we would vacuum and do laundry and do the lockers and by the time you got done playing tape ball with billy ripkin you know it's 3 3 30 in the morning and now you got to get up and do it again the next morning so it was just a really really special time kyle venna who works in our front office did it with the royals and we call ourselves the trench club because you're down in the trenches with those guys and you never know what's going to be expected of you from day to day i wonder a ton of kids and when i say kids i mean 18 19 20 year olds will come to me and say well hey how do you break into big time sports whether it's the mlb or nfl or nba and i say well hey you got to go volunteer i mean you got to work for free and eyes get big and they say well what do you mean i say well i'm talking no pay you know no benefits and you just got to be in the building and that's usually where it ends there aren't a lot of people who follow up on that do you see You've seen the game progress, and you've seen a lot of interns and people come in through organizations. Do you think there's still a lot of fire and drive from folks who want to break in to Major League Baseball who are willing to humble themselves and do the sorts of things that you did? I don't. And, you know, I, I try to help kids every day. I mean, the winter meetings are coming up in Washington, D.C. in a couple of weeks, and, and it's going to be another realm of just, you know, mass people coming on to, onto the scene, graduating with their sports management degrees, trying to get jobs. And it's incredibly difficult, incredibly mm. difficult to break in. And it's almost more difficult than being a player because there's so many, there's a new wave of college graduates every year. And so, you know, I, I tell every student that I talk to, and I, I try to communicate as much as the day will allow me, because I remember what it was like when I went to the winter meetings in Louisville in 1993. And Spent money on a plane ticket and a suit and couldn't get anybody to talk to me. What was that? I mean, would you did you have kind of a stack of resumes? I did. Yeah, you, you're I went, I went to get a job to... in radio, and and I would and you know I had and I tell you what, after the first day, I called the Rangers back and I said I'll be back next year. I mean, it was <laughs> it was real eye opening, and I, I I say this to kids all the time, and I say that to players all the time. Maybe you'll play in the big leagues, maybe you won't, but if you don't believe you will, it's never going to happen. Hmm. And and that's sort of what I I believe about working in the game and and I I try to help as many people as I can but you got to believe but you got to you got to be willing to be selfless and make a lot of sacrifices and invest in people and time and and with no guarantees and the real unfortunate part for me is I see a growing trend of kids that get in the game and they want to be department heads tomorrow. <laughs> Instead of let me get my feet wet, let me learn and grow and develop and cultivate, because it's a house of cards. If you if you get a job, and you're not ready for the job. You're not going to keep the job, and so that's even a, a bigger shame for me. How many times have you been fired? Well, I got fired by the uh, San Diego Padres in uh, September of 1999, and I got fired by the Atlanta Braves in September of 2002. And that's it. Hmm. Okay, so we, I've got you by one. I think I've been fired three times. And you know what they say, you Is haven't it? arrived in pro sports until yeah. you've been fired three times. Here's a question for you. How do you deal with it? I mean, it's it's one of those things where if you're in pro sports, after a while, I wouldn't say you get used to it, but you've seen it happen. You've been in the building when people have, 
you know, when the uh, security guards have come in with the dollies and guys have got an hour to clear out their things. How do you deal with that from a personality and confidence standpoint? Talk about the first time you got fired, maybe, and, and what well, that both, felt both, like. Well, both times for me have been really, really unique, and that was situations where I was told I wasn't going to be fired. I was as transparent as I could be on my end hmm. in saying, hey, look, I expect there to be change. Just give me the time. And in both instances, I was told, well, I had a two-year extension one time rescinded, and the other time I went to the general manager and said, hey, um, I know there's going to be changes. Just give me a heads up. No, you're fine. You do a great job. If anything, we're expanding. So, you know, that troubled me. The lack of integrity troubled me more than the act because we're all hired to be fired. It's cliche, but we're all, I'll get fired again someday. And that's the part of being in pro sports. It's not a reflection of you as a man, you as a, a talent evaluator, you as a worker, you as a leader. It's just, you know, sometimes it's time for a new voice, a new vision, a new plan. And, and you know, certainly the powers that be, because they pay the salaries, have the right to do whatever they feel is right for the organization. Hmm. Talk about talent evaluation, and and you mentioned, you know, you were kind enough to speak in my class today, and you mentioned the fact that when you guys landed in Kansas City, the Kansas City Royals, and you listed off a ton of leagues, were at the bottom in terms of franchises and winning. And you had to come in and change the culture. When you're going into an organization where the culture's bad, People aren't used to winning. How do you begin to turn it around? Well, what's so unique for me on a personal level, and I feel like for a lot of us in Kansas City, is I had been in Houston as a part-time scout. We went to the playoffs. I'd been in San Diego full-time. We went to the World Series and lost. I'd been in Atlanta where we won 14 straight division titles. I went to Miami where we won the World Series in 2003. Mm -hmm. And so here we go into Kansas City in 2006, and I had covered the organization nine years before the day I went to work there. And this is one of the more troublesome things about sports for me is being in the industry and covering that organization for nine years. On the outside looking in, I thought I knew what was going on, the inner workings, and you have no idea. So for the common fan to look at a situation or a scenario and think that they know what's going on inside those four walls is kind of troubling for me because there's so much more involved and you don't really know the reasons behind the thinking. You don't know why they ended up with that player or that situation payroll-wise or why the culture is what it is. So but for us it was really when we got there from day 1 it was it was it was changing the culture and instilling winning in the minor leagues from day 1 hmm. whether you know we we never lost 100 games that was one of a Dayton Moore's big goals was to put the most competitive team on the field that we can put on the field. And then it it really became groundwork. You've got to do the very best that you can in the draft. Where When you get a Mike Moustakis or a Eric Hosmer, you've got to do the very best you can internationally with a Salvador Perez and a Kelvin Herrera. And you've got to do the very best you can in trading for impact talent, getting a Lorenzo Cain and an Alicides Escobar uh, and a Jake Odorizzi who went to Tampa in the James Shields and Wade Davis deal. So it's sort of bridging three avenues of acquiring players together and creating that winning culture and hoping that that wave can all fall together. And and, uh, fortunately, it did for us. Talk about talent. And I think, you know, you've got one of the hardest jobs in America in that you've got to project talent. You've got to evaluate talent that looks pretty good right now, but get a sense of 
Is this person really a good fit for our organization? Are there some traits that you're looking for when you hit the road or when you send your scouts out to hit the road? And I'm thinking, you know, both on the diamond, but also just character traits that you're looking in, looking at for a player who's going to become a Royal. It's a really big deal for us. Character uh, for our organization and our general manager, Dayton Moore, is a really big deal. And in the beginning, when you're just trying to win games, you've got to assess some risk. When we're evaluating players, we go tools of the player, statistics, the role, the makeup, and the risk. Those are five mm-hmm. things that we look at. And we, then we we have a, an evaluation, a medical evaluation, a financial evaluation. And those are the things that we sort of throw in the melting pot when we're talking about every player that we talk about. When you're trying to win games, you, you're a little bit more throwing caution into the wind. You've got to assess a little more risk because the bottom line is you got to improve. you got to improve every day. Once you begin to win and you start to win in 13 when we're three games out with seven to play and we fall short, and 14 we're 90 feet away from tying game seven and we fall short, and then ultimately winning the world championship in 15, now everything sort of changes. You, you've built the culture, the expectation level of what that player, you want that player to be in your organization. Because once you start to go the other way and you lose your culture, you start to lose games, and that's how you lose your job. That's the tough part, right? I mean, because, and I think about, just take Baylor. And I've been in the meeting room where you've looked at a player and you've said, man, this kid, can he can jump and he can catch and he can run. But we know he has some issues because if you do your legwork, someone in the cafeteria back at the high school has told you about some incidents or someone in the neighborhood. But oftentimes you're caught between, man, this guy can help us right now. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to get yourself out of a hole. I know you talked about integrity earlier in the conversation. How are you able to keep guys in the room who may want to take a player and there are too many risks for the organization? Say, hey, listen. This is what our team represents, and this player doesn't quite meet that that standard. But you got to get there first, and mm-hmm. and and I, I've been the king of recommending the at risk, mm-hmm. the high risk, especially early on when we had lost so many games for so long. I, I recommended players that had done jail time and had had some, you know, things I'm not proud of. But but the bottom line was, and and I, I remember we acquired one player where he had gotten in a domestic dispute with his wife. Now we're in Kansas City, we're in the Midwest. Tremendous human beings, tremendous people, great community. And we bring in this player, and, and the backlash early was was quick. I mean, it was, why are, why are they doing this? Why would they bring this guy in? And my response to my boss at the time was, first time he gets five hits, nobody will ever say a word. Hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. He blended in with us. He knew that this was it for him. And, that, and that's sometimes when you got to balance the 24 guys in the room how are they going to respond to this guy? His ability and him ability to maybe he's a distraction in the clubhouse, but in between the white lines, is this guy going to put us over top and win a championship? And we got to measure that risk. Hmm. And and so it's it's a really really slippery slope. The viewpoint for me has changed, especially with winning. And and I can tell you from this year, it's much more difficult to handle success than it is failure. Just the things that come with winning championships and how people's lives are changed, the way they wake up, the way they go to the ballpark, the way they play, everybody, Hmm. top to bottom. It's different because you've won and you've gotten to that plateau. And keeping that motivation and that focus is a really, really tremendous thing to do. Hmm. Why baseball for you? of all the sports i mean what is it what does baseball do for you personally that other sports haven't quite 
I say that all the time, Darren, because I, I grew up in Temple, Texas, where it was a football factory, yeah. and Friday night was everything. And you know, you you weren't a kid in Temple and didn't play football. You played football. When's the time in the game that that you were absolutely sure you were a hundred percent right, and then looking back on it, you were a hundred percent wrong. Maybe it's a player, maybe it's a decision within the organization. Has there been a time where you've I know we've all made mistakes, but something you look back and think, man, how did I really get that? How did I get that wrong? Many times. But one would be, and I won't name the player, but one will be in 2014 when we're, you know, we're struggling along and there's kind of a lack of sense of urgency with a particular player. And I'm like, we got to get this guy out of here. We got to go. And it would have been a monumental mistake had we done it because... The players end up being a tremendous part of what we've done in our two championship seasons. And so I, I but I said this to your class earlier, you know, if you do this long enough, you're going to look back and you're going to have a lot of swings and big hits and you're going to have a lot of swings and misses. And I think the the thing that you have to evaluate every day is don't get too high when you're right and don't get too low when you're wrong. Stay humble. And in all your practices and all your thought processes, just try to make the best decision that you can make and, and qualify your reasons for it and hope that it works out. Hmm. You talked about not getting too high and too, and too low. The guys and the gals that have flamed out that you've seen in different organizations that you've been with, what's been their downfall? Have there been some, some shortcomings? Is there a trend of folks who just don't make it that you see? Well, I think I think what you find out is how incredibly hard it is mm-hmm. to be one of 750 in the world. And, and, and I tell young players, young minor league players all the time, there's really only one promotion that matters, and that's to the big leagues. And everything else is just baseball, whether you're playing in San Juan, Puerto Rico, or, or Caracas, Venezuela, or in Burlington, Iowa, in the Midwest League. It's baseball. So every day is an opportunity for you to wake up, represent yourself, represent your family, get better as a player, and hope that you're given enough time that something clicks that you can continue to play. Hmm. And hopefully, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you go watch bingo at the Casey Hall and those balls are all bouncing around. Hopefully your ball keeps bouncing long enough that it gets pulled Hmm. and you're one of 750 in the world because one in three play one year, another one in three play five. And that's why that other 30% makes so much money, makes the money they do is because they're truly the best in the world. And so it's an incredibly difficult game. And the the one thing that I think that I've noticed with players over the years is they get to a point, they're trending upward, they meet some adversity, they start to trend the other way, and they let their lifestyle get away from them. Hmm. And, and it, this is a toxic lifestyle. You you Every day you wake up, you've got money and time and a lot of things, a lot of distractions. And oftentimes it's a lifestyle that will, that will end a player's career. And if they don't do it right in the clubhouse, they're going to cost themselves years on the back end of their career because nobody's going to want them on their team. And there's a lot of that in the game. So, you know, this makes me think of Mr. Manziel. I was teaching a class and had some students who were really, they were very critical of Manziel and some of his decisions. And I said, you know, I want you to think about, let's say at the age of 20, you get an award that says you're the best collegiate athlete. And then a major league team hands you millions of dollars to be the face of the franchise. That experience would exacerbate a lot of folks' flaws, right? And it's easy to kind of be judgmental, but it, it's tough because we've kind of created this monster, right? Like, I mean, this this thing we call athletics and 
we're here at the University of Texas and the athletic department generates $180 million. And has it gotten out of hand? I mean, in terms of fans and what they want and how how quickly they want the wins. Do you think that's, have we reached a point of no return? Well, I think, and this is this one's close to my heart because I I love Coach Strong. I love him as a person and what he represents. And But in the, in the Manziel instance, and, and oftentimes, and I tell student athletes this all the time, the roadside is littered, hmm. littered with great athletes that couldn't manage their personal life, thought they were bigger than the game. This game, baseball, football, basketball, soccer, whatever it is, it's going to keep on rolling with or without you. Here's the double-edged sword. You get a, a kid like that in high school that all they want to do is win, and they win, so he gets to do what he wants, and he gets into college, and all they want to do is win, and he wins, and he gets to do what he wants, and nobody's ever told him along the way, this is wrong, so he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. It's like what I said to the class about Twitter. Hmm. If nobody tells them, they don't think they're doing anything. It's all they know. We didn't know it. We didn't grow up with it. Yeah. So it's all they know. So, you, so now... You, you as a as an institution say we we want to strive for more. We're tired of the arrest. We're tired of the drugs. We're tired of the academics being poor. And you bring a guy in and he does everything that you ask, but doesn't win on the field in a three year time period. I don't know how you can fault the guy. And at the end of the day, and I say this about everything, winning or losing. At the end of the day, if you get a chance to do a job and you do it with integrity, and you have character in the way you do it, and you're changing people's lives in a positive way. When you're 65 and you're done and you're sitting on the front porch with your wife, you can look back and have great pride in the way you did things and the and the way you went about it. And that's sort of what I'm I'm most excited about at the end of all this. Four World Series, two wins, two losses, being a part of changing the culture and, and the history of the Kansas City Royals organization. When it's mm-hmm. all said and done and it's time to celebrate what we did, we're going to be very, very proud of the way yeah. we did it. How do we get more folks of color in the States playing baseball and sticking with it. You know, this is obviously a, a big topic and something that Major League Baseball is grappling with and trying to figure out. What do you think the answers are? Well, it's got to be a grassroots effort because it's been 20 years and, and, the, and the, the horse is out of the barn. And it's it started, uh, and I, I this is something that's very, very dear to my heart because I look at these families. First of all, I look at our game as an industry and as a protector of our game. And I don't I don't think that our game is in very good shape. People would argue that with me. But in the U.S., United States, again, there's 750 great players in the big leagues, and there's always going to be that. But the supply and demand of the players coming is not what it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I, I attribute it to our, our amateur system in the United States. It's, it's money-based. It's gotten way out of control with what it costs a family to play the game. Families aren't educated. Today, there's going to be a mom in South Austin that wants to go sign her kid up for baseball and spring baseball, and she's going to go try to do it, and she's going to be told, this is what you need to do. And she's going to do it. You want to know why? Because the Joneses are doing it, and the Smiths are doing it, so I better do it. And there's just no education basis to it, and it's all turned into this big money grab of people just – there's no scholarship, one, at the age of six or seven, eight, nine, ten years old. There's team play. There's getting along with others. There's learning how to be a good teammate. And what's the snack after the game? And learn a little baseball along the way. That shouldn't cost a family $1,000 a year to do that. And I think there's just so many filters on the game now financially that that parents, you know, my mom, single-parent mom, there's no way we could have done it. No way. And I was fortunate enough to have help and guidance along the way that told me as a a father, if your kid's good enough to play, people are going to want him to pay. So just tell them we're not paying. And that's what we did. Hmm. And it worked out. I just wish that 
parents want to say their kids are good players, but they want to pay for it. Yeah. If your kid's a good player, you shouldn't be paying for anything. A scholarship's <laughs> a scholarship. It's not reimbursement. And so I really struggle with that. I don't think there's enough awareness created. And we are making it very easy for kids to go to other sports because of the finances of it, because of the pace of play, where society is in this fast pace, and it's really damaging our game. Yeah. Do you, th- you think we're too camped out? I'm thinking back to my days coaching in West Virginia and this whole seven-on-seven mania. You know, So the AAU basketball leagues, you know, the equivalent of that in football now is this seven-on-seven tournaments all across the country. You start in May, you finish in late July. You know, kids are traveling from Clemson to West Virginia to Alabama. And I wonder, you know, how much time are kids just hanging out, playing in the backyard? You know, everything's so organized. Do you think we're we're almost too camped out? I think a baseball player, select ball, fall ball. No doubt about like, it. No doubt about yeah. it. And, and, and if anything else, I mean, you're making it easy on the college coaches to say your kid can't play and you're overexposing them. Hmm. And I, I say this all the time, Kansas City, the high school baseball in Kansas City, in my opinion, is better than the high school baseball in Austin, Texas. Now, how can that be? They've got bad weather. They've got snow. They've got rain. Well, because they're athletes. They're playing baseball and then it gets cold and they put the baseball glove up and they go play basketball or they play football and they're developing their bodies and they're, they're developing their skills and their body movements and they're, they're good athletes. We had a workout two years ago in Kansas City. I couldn't have gotten those 30 athletes that were in the room there in a room here in Austin, Texas to save my life. Really? Because the seven on seven, okay, here comes that kid and I can pay $2,500 to play summer ball or I can pay two or $300 to play seven on seven. Quarterback, wide receiver, running back, shortstop, pitcher, center field, <laughs> your best athletes. <laughs> Just creating the awareness and allowing kids to be athletes again and eliminating the marketing of our kids at the age of eight because you want to go to work on Monday and say that your kid plays for this particular program. You got, you got to limit. If you really, truly care about your kid and you want them to be successful, let them play everything. Let them grow as leaders and, and as athletes and be a part of different cultures and different environments. And if they can play, they will be found. You know, the parents don't believe you. No, I know there, they don't. There's a parent right now who's listening to this and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. But I, I gotta... I'll go one further. I'll go one further. I could announce today, I could announce today that me and three of my buddies that work in Major League Baseball are going to hold a free camp in Georgetown, Texas over the weekend and we wouldn't have anybody show up. But if I put a $1,000 price tag on it, we'd be sold out. Because they feel like that if you're not paying, it can't be worth anything. And that's not true. That's not the case. Yeah. What do you think about kids in baseball being able to go straight to the pros, straight out of high school and just go? Do you think that you think it's a good thing and it's a bad thing? You know, for each of the three major sports, there's a different system, and that's a, that's a longer conversation. What are your thoughts on being well, able to I, I think Well, I think there's two, there's two cases. You've got the international player where – it's an opportunity for them to provide for their families. Most of them have sixth, seventh grade educations, and this is a financial means to support their families. And so that structure is is, is a good structure for those players and their families because it, it protects their future. It's different in the United States because our kids are going to school. And my son was drafted out of high school by the Washington Nationals. I was petrified, hmm. petrified about him getting on a plane and flying to Melbourne, Florida, and this is this is a kid that had traveled the world and has done everything, and it petrified me to thrust him into that that life and that life and how hard it is on these young kids 
Uh, now, two years later, he was drafted. He went and everything was fine. He two years away from home, two years of being in the classroom and, and growing as a person. I just think every kid is different. I think that every family background is different. Every upbringing is different. Kids' maturity levels are different. Their physical levels are different. And what's really, really hurtful is when a player and their families play the comparison game <laughs> because everybody's different. Single parent mom, Temple, Texas, had never left Bell County, high finance family from Highland Park High School, the kid had traveled the world, and you're going to give that kid $7 million out of high It's different, different, two different worlds. <laughs> I want you to leave us with some of the nuggets of wisdom that you shared with the class today, and, and you started with relationships and how important relationships are. And I thought you did a neat exercise where you told everyone to stand up in class, and you said, hey, I want you to go and meet five people in the class that you haven't met throughout the entire semester. And I have about 100 kids in there. Why did you start with relationships? I mean, how important has that been to your success? It's been everything. It's been everything. I mean, I, I, I look back on my life and from my high school baseball coach that finally put me on the team to my high school football coach to James Keller, who allowed me to stick with St. Edwards University for a year, mm-hmm. to Butch McBroom at UT Arlington when he could have said no and he said yes and allowed me to run with that program for three years. To Dayton Moore, who has believed in me when there have been many, many times he could have easily said, I'm going a different direction. To me, it's that genuine knowing that you truly, truly care for what they're they're trying to accomplish. You truly, truly believe in what they want to accomplish. And you truly, truly have their best interest in mind, mm. even if that doesn't include what's your best interest. And that that's a daily struggle as a leader is to check yourself and say and to humble yourself because, you know, we can get out there as leaders and we can get out there as people saying, this isn't fair to me. I'm not getting a fair shake. Why is he getting this and I'm not getting that? And it's very easy to get wrapped up in that web professionally, especially when you've been successful. Mm. And I think you just have to humble yourself and you've got to want to be a part of something bigger than you. And that's been a struggle for me at times. But I just think that I look back on my life and, and I've got great friends and you know, we have a mutual friend that I met in, a, in an airport, in line at an airport, at LaGuardia Airport, that, you know, had I not said, hey, you know, where are you going today? And my family laughs at me because we get on the planes and I'm like talking to everybody, on, hey, where are you from? Where are you going? I just think the world is placed so small when you do that and you can learn so much. And some of my closest friends in the world are people that I've met down the third baseline at a spring training game or on an airplane or in a hotel lobby. If you truly care about people and you're engaging and it can be a major, major tool. And I feel like that these kids today are can't believe I'm saying these kids today. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're there, right? Yeah. You know, we're at that age. But these kids today and their social media and their cell phones, and I told the kids today, you got to get out of this and you got to get into the room, into your daily lives and say hello to people and say thank you and please and, and, and just engage because you never know what that engagement's going to turn into from a relationship and an opportunity in your life. Hmm. What else? Uh, you know, this is, I think that, that, piece of advice of get outside of your screen, stop scrolling so much, have a conversation with someone. It's so easy to hide behind text messages, favorites, likes, shares. And, you know, I I thought about this the other day. I was driving across campus. How many students I almost hit because they were walking, they weren't looking where they were going, and they were just scrolling. It's so easy to be disconnected now. And it seems like 
whether you're on a plane or whether you're at an exhibition game, you're constantly, even now, and people would say, hey, you've achieved a lot of success. You're still cultivating relationships on a daily basis. I think you got to manage. I love social media. I mean, I get criticized. I love the Facebook. I love to tweet and I like Instagram. And it's a powerful tool if you use it in the right way to brand yourself and show people the things that you believe in, the things that are important to you to spread a message, to spread a belief. It, it, it can be a very, very powerful thing. And I think a lot of people underutilize it, hmm. but I think you got to manage it. I think there's a time and a place and, and it's very, very difficult, especially in our family, my family, we get on each other all the time. Hey, put the phone down. Let's be here together. Let's talk. It's just a different world we live in today. And I think you've got to try to manage it. I try to do it on airplanes or if I'm in a car riding and there's really nothing else I can do, hmm. but it's, it's a different world and you've just got to take the time to not forget that all those likes and shares and everything are great, but the real personal communication and the real personal interaction and the real impact and impacting somebody's lives is still face-to-face and eye-to-eye and, and having really good conversations about people's lives. That's a wonderful way to end this. Appreciate it, Gene. Thanks for coming man. to the tribe. I love great to have you. And thanks also. I mean, you are very generous with your time. You know, talking with students, you're constantly on campus trying to give back. So, so thank you for doing that. Thank you. It was thank great. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Tribe Called Yes. For more information, you can visit us at atribecalledyes.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget, keep saying yes. Yes.